you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 55, Sex and Gender, part 2. I'm your host, James Fodor. So this episode continues on directly from the previous episode, as you might have guessed, so strongly recommend that you listen to that first. In this uh, second part of the two-part series on sex and gender, we're going to be talking about the hormonal and other biological differences between males and females, and the extent to which they can explain uh, different differences in behavior and attitudes and so on between males and females. And then we will move on to applying some of the techniques and insights that we have gained from the first and second uh, parts to discuss more specific issues, including occupational segregation, uh, representation of women in math and STEM fields, and differences in emotion and conversations, uh, the, the way in which men and women engage in conversation. So let's jump straight into it and start talking about hormones. So I don't think we've really talked about hormones on this podcast before. Hormones are just regulatory chemicals that are produced and distributed throughout the body that have a wide variety of biological consequences. They're generally involved in regulating things like metabolism and heart rate and uh, growth of tissues and all sorts of things. That, that There's an enormous variety of functions that hormones perform. The, the, the system that most relates to hormones is called the endocrine system, and we'll do a podcast on that. I'll do a podcast on that at some point. But anyway, we just need to understand for, for this episode that hormones are chemicals that cause various biological uh, phenomena. And in particular, we're interested here in sex hormones. Sex hormones are those hormones which are responsible for sexual behaviors and uh, primary and secondary, se- the formation and maintenance of primary and secondary, primary and secondary sexual characteristics in males and females. Now, contrary to what some people think, males and females both possess uh, basically all the types of hormones. So testosterone is famously a uh, associated with, with males. Male-type hormones like testosterone are known as androgens, and estrogen is commonly thought of as a, a female hormone. M- males and females both have testosterone and estrogen and all the other hormones. It's just the relative quantities of the different types of hormones that uh, has, has the difference, but it's not the, the fact that one gender has them and the other, one sex has them and the other doesn't. Anyway, the, the particular relevance of hormones that uh, we want to focus on is the effect they have on the developing fetus in utero, because there is an interesting body of evidence that suggests that the exposure to androgens, that, remember that's those masculinizing hormones, uh, in utero has a strong effect on the subsequent behavior and gender identity interests and, and so on uh, of, of the child. Now, in studying this, in studying the effect of hormones in particular, it's necessary, obviously, to control for confounding factors. So if we want to determine whether, say, uh, gendered toy preference, for instance, is most is biological or social in nature, or is more biological or more social, we would have to have some way of separating the effect of socialization from the effects of biology. So in order to do that, what we would need is examples of biological females who are treated like males, or biological males who are treated like females, or something like that. Now, there are some interesting cases you might have heard of. of uh, for example, there's one famous case of a, a young boy whose penis was burnt off in a botched circumcision and was uh, henceforth raised as a female, but then ultimately came to question his gender identity and, I believe, had a sex change operation or something like that, and had, had his penis reconstructed. There are some interesting cases like that, but the numbers are too small and uncontrolled to make very firm conclusions on those bases. And there's confounding factors as well. You know, It may be the case that, for example, this individual who had their, their penis burnt off, it may be the case that they were treated differently, particularly by their parents, who knew the true situation, uh, than ordinary males. And so there are potential confounding variables there in these unusual cases. One particularly interesting case, though, is that of a condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Now, this is a condition which is found in both uh, men, uh, both uh, male and female uh, children, 
but is really only relevant to girls. Because basically what it does is it causes the adrenal gland in the young girls to, uh, well, in utero, that is, to excrete large quantities, in other words, much larger quantities than would normally be the case in, in females, of androgens. And this has the effect of masculinizing the uh, external genitalia of the, uh, the females to, to some extent. But the very interesting thing is that girls with uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia dem uh, exhibit male patterns of behavior and toy preference, for instance. So, so girls with uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia are more likely to express a preference for male toys. They're more likely to be described as tomboys. They're more likely to engage in rough and tumble play and uh, be more aggressive, these type of male pattern behaviors. Despite the fact that they look like girls and are raised like girls uh, in essentially all the regular ways. Now, one hypothesis to explain this finding was that parents know that their children have congenital, that the girls have congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and so perhaps they treat them differently. There isn't really any evidence for this, and in fact, if anything, there's evidence for the reverse, that it seems that, if anything, parents attempt to encourage the girls to engage in uh, gender-appropriate or gender-consistent behavior and toy play and such, but regardless, the girls still tend to develop a preference for uh, male toys and for male-type uh, behaviors. Uh, there's just a point that I want to make here, which uh, probably would have been better made in, in, episode, in the first episode, in part one of this series. Uh, however, I'll just uh, discuss it now, and that is that it's uh, problematic to ask parents how they treat their children, because generally they'll say that they don't tr they treat male, their male and female children the same, that there's no difference. But this really isn't true. I mean, again, as we've seen, people are not very good at introspecting about their motives and behaviours, and so self-reports are not necessarily very reliable. Much better, it, it's much better to observe how they actually behave in naturalistic settings, and when we do that, we do find that parents tend to encourage play that is consistent with um, perceived gender roles. They give more approval to girls for dressing up in feminine clothes and playing with dolls and asking for help and things like that, whereas they give more discouragement when uh, boys do that sort of thing, and they encourage boys to engage in um, more active activity, playing with blocks and cars and things like that, and discourage feminine type behaviour, often in relatively subtle ways, but you can document these effects when uh, with close observation. And th the point is, this uh, this type of differential treatment of male and female children is uh, occurs regardless of whether the parents are aware of it or admit to it or anything like that, so it's, a, it's not necessarily a conscious thing. Anyway, coming back to congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Uh, so this effect of masculinization of the behaviour of... of um, girls with congenital adrenal hyperplasia is supported by other studies of various other conditions that alter the hormonal levels in the neonatal period, which show a fairly clear dose-response effect. Higher androgen levels lead to higher rates of male-typical play and male-typical attitudes and behaviours. There's also some evidence that girls with congenital adrenal hyperplasia grow up to be more likely to be bisexual or homosexual, although the chance is still relatively low. In other words, most girls with this condition still become uh, exclusively heterosexual, but the rates of, of bisexuality uh, and also of gender confusion do tend to be a fair bit higher. Also, one interesting uh, finding is that not only do these females tend to be more, more aggressive, they're also less interested in uh, in children and uh, nurturing and those sort of uh, traditionally uh, maternal type of activities. So the, uh, the conclusion of this body of evidence is there does seem to be quite strong uh, evidence that prenatal, particularly prenatal hormonal levels, do have strong effects on the behaviours and attitudes of uh, of children. And it seems to be dependent on the time as well. It has to be at particular points during the pregnancy these, when these hormone levels are present. It's not really understood exactly how the, the, the hormones affect these, these sort of fairly high-level behaviours. Uh, it's hypothesised that there's effects on the brain, 
uh, that, that the hormonal levels have an effect on the development of the brain in utero. That, in some sense, obviously has to be true because behavior is the product of the brain. And so if behavior is different, the brain has to be different in some way. But it's not really known how it's different or exactly what the hormone does. It's, it's The sort of thing is too poorly understood. There's also another piece of evidence which supports the a role for biological differences, specifically in toy preferences, and that is, and I found this result very, very surprising, but there is, there have been at least two independent studies, so this effect has been replicated, of a toy pref- of a gender, of a gendered toy preference in non-human primates. So I think that these studies were done with chimpanzees, that uh, male chimpanzee, I think they did with children, uh, preferred to play with trucks and other things like that, whereas the females preferred to play with dolls. So this, the, the, these findings were, I think, quite surprising to many people. They were something surprising to me when I found out about them, and they're still controversial. They're fairly recent, so th- there's always the possibility of methodological problems, but on the face of it, they seem to be legitimate findings. So uh, if that's the case, it, it may well be that the hormones have some sort of very fundamental or basic sort of underlying structural effect on the brain. It's been hypothesized that they may uh, encourage the development or the differential development of, of space, of, of the regions of the brain responsible for vision or for, for um, spatial dexterity or something like that. In other words, some sort of very basic underlying faculties which are uh, relevant both to chimpanzees and to humans, and that then uh, through various processes of experience and social reinforcement and so on become manifested in more specific differences in interests, like an interest in cars versus dolls. So it, it's not that the hormones are directly leading to this toy difference. It's the, the idea is that the hormones lead to some gross, that is sort of broad-scale structural difference or... or sort of functional differences in the brain, and that this is then manifested in different preferences for toys and different behavior, differential behaviours and high levels of, of aggression and so on. But that's all largely speculative. We don't really know what these hormones are doing in, in very much detail. But there seems to be little doubt that there is some effect. Now, moving on from hormonal differences, we will talk a bit about other biological differences between male and female. Particularly what I want to focus on are differences in the brain. Now, recently there have been, with the rise of neuroscience and various new, uh, neuroimaging techniques, there have been a large number of studies purporting to show various structural and functional differences between male and female brains, and there's an enormous amount of literature on this. A huge number of potential differences or diversities have been discovered. I'll just mention a few of them. Uh, well, one finding that is fairly well uh, replicated, so this one is uh, fairly, fairly well accepted, is that female brains on average are smaller, I think something like 10% smaller than male brains. That doesn't necessarily have mean anything of very much consequence. It, it's it's thought probably just to be a product of smaller average body size. But even if that is not the case, there's no there's no real uh, connection between intelligence and brain size in humans anyway. So a few studies have found very minor effects, but in general, it's not accepted that brain size relates to intelligence in any particularly strong way or even moderately strong way. So uh, that difference in size is not necessarily any particular significance. But anyway, some other differences that have been uh, found include the the size of the cerebrum compared to the rest of the brain, the volume of white matter, the volume of cortical matter, so the apparently females exhibit a larger quantity of grey matter compared to white matter, grey matter being cell bodies, white matter being the axons that connect the neurons together, various uh, regions of the cortex having different sizes or being in slightly different locations, difference in cell packing density, particularly in language-related fields like Broca's area and Wernicke's area, which are parts of the brain responsible for uh, types of, uh, for particular language behaviours. Uh, differential connections between different parts of the brain, differences in the in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the orbitofrontal cortex, uh, differences in certain gyri, which are the which are the ridges that stick up out of the uh, cortex of the brain, and uh, also differences in the corpus callosum, which is a series of wire tracks, basically of, of axons bundled together, which connect the two halves of the brain together. 
that is supposedly more dense in, in females than in males. So there's a wide variety of morphological differences that have been found, some replicated, some not, and some robust and some not, uh, the differences between male and female brains. And these are often widely, widely reported. Now, I think these differences really have to be taken with a very big grain of salt, uh, a very, very large amount of salt, in fact. Not so much that the differences aren't real, although some of them might not be, because remember, it's problematic if you do a very large number, like hundreds, even thousands of these sorts of studies, and compare two groups, males and females. Just by chance, you're going to get a certain proportion of significantly, uh, statistically significant differences, especially when you can compare, when there's essentially an unlimited number of variables you can compare. You can compare any uh, two different brain regions to see if there's any differences. You can compare cell density size. You can uh, compare the, the structure. That You can compare functional relationships. You can, you can compare connectivities. There's there's no bounds because there's no, there's no theory that's underpinning this search for differences. It's just, can we find any differences between males and females? And you look for them. Of course, there are differences. The, the real question is, is there any significance to these differences? Do they really mean anything? And the jury's really out on that. We have, I think it's fair to say that we have no idea if there are any real, real functional or behavioral significance to any of these morphological differences that have been discovered. Certainly, uh, many differences have been proposed. I think basically none of them have any particular evidence. Some of them might be plausible. I think sort of the ones that tend to make the rounds in the popular media about, you know, women's brains being wired to be better for multitasking or for empathy or whatever, and males' brains being wired, uh, there tends to be a phrase hardwired, which is often used, and I'll come back to that, uh, hardwired for, uh, for spatio tasks or special tasks or for, I don't know, decision making or whatever. Uh, these, so, so these inferences are really not warranted by the evidence that's available. What we can say is that there are structural differences and there are certain functional differences in terms of the levels of activation of different regions. What we can't say is whether these mean, are, me are meaningful in any way or have any particular behavioral uh, consequences. The other thing is that the fact that there are differences between male and female brains is completely unsurprising because, remember, we have established that there are very substantial differences between male and female behavior. We've just talked about that in this episode and particularly in, in, in part one about how males and females have uh, different behaviours, how they dress differently, how they tend to go into different occupations, uh, how they socialise in different ways, on and on and on. And we'll talk about more of those differences later on. The emotional differences, differences in interests, differences in conversations. There are heaps of differences between males and females. So, obviously, those differences have to be instantiated in the brain somehow, because all be all behaviour and all attitudes and all, all memories and everything is ultimately instantiated somewhere in the brain. So if there are behavioural and attitudinal differences between males and females, of course there are going to be brain differences. That, sh that should come as no surprise whatsoever. It, it could not possibly be any other way. The fact that there are brain differences, therefore, only tells us that there must that there may be some sort of behavioural or attitudinal differences between males and females. But of course, we already knew that was the case anyway. So, re really, I'm quite sceptical about how much these uh, these brain studies, these fMRI and MRI studies, really tell us about the differences between males and females. At the level of at the level of sophistication that they have currently reached, I don't think they really tell us anything that we didn't already know. They tell us that there are some differences. We already knew that. They don't tell us about the nature of those differences. In particular, and this is very important to understand, they don't tell us anything about whether those differences are genetic or biological or hormonal or are the result of socialization and experience. Because any change, whether it's genetic or hormonal or social in nature, any change into that, that results in memory formation or experience or anything like that is going to be instantiated in the brain. Just by looking at changes in the brain, you can't tell if that change was caused by uh, genetic influences or hormonal influences during, uh, in uh, in utero, or whether it was the result of socialization. If you look at children who have been raised in deprived circumstances, particularly like you know orphanages or, uh, in extreme cases, those who have been subject to abuse and 
have not had exposure to language or a rich environment, you can certainly tell differences in the brain. There are very obvious differences in, in brain development. So it's, it's certainly known that differences in social, in socialization will have effects on structure and function of the brain. Indeed, it could not possibly be any otherwise. There's this concept that biology somehow translates to being determined or unchangeable, but that's just really not true at all. There's very little about biology that's truly determined. Even things like uh, sexual organs can be, at least with modern technology, uh, changed to some degree. You can have uh, penis reconstruction or a vagina reconstruction and other things like this. There are hormonal treatments that can uh, result in changes to sex secondary sexual characteristics, uh, like body hair and other things like that. Uh, and that's, of course, at the extreme end of the spectrum. Most other things aren't even as close to being as biologically determined even as that. Any sufficiently complicated behavior is the product of a very complicated interplay of biology and of society. And to say that just because biology has an influence, that therefore that means the outcome is determined or unchangeable is simply absurd. It doesn't follow at all. There's also been a history of using biological explanations to demean and subordinate women. So particularly in the 19th and even early 20th centuries, there was a... Uh, the early studies of these sorts of sexual differences uh, tended to focus on, in particular, studying the female brain, and the finding that female brains tended to be smaller than male brains was used as evidence that uh, women were less intelligent. And uh, not only that, but a wide variety of other uh, various biological differences were, were purported to be uh, proof. Uh, the menstrual cycle was another one, uh, uh, to be clear proof of women's inferiority and unsuitability for public office and other things like this. So that, we do have to be somewhat careful about biological explanations because historically they have been problematic. But of course, that, that doesn't mean that there aren't any biological explanations. But I think the most important thing to take away from this is to understand that biology doesn't mean predetermined or unchangeable. I think we, we, to, to do science properly, we have to try and overcome these connotations of what, what biology means, both the positive and the negative ones, or the, the ones about biology being unchangeable and immutable, and also the ones about uh, how biology is being used to, uh, to demean or to uh, suppress women. We have to overcome those and just look at what does the evidence actually say. And at the moment, the evidence seems to say there certainly are influences of biology. In particular, we looked at the hormonal effects, and, and there, are diff uh, there, there, are, there is evidence about structural and functional differences in the brain. The questions that remain open are the extent to which there are real behavioral uh, consequences of these uh, structural and functional differences in the brain, and also the extent to which these brain differences are the result rather than the consequence of socialization. So what causes these brain differences, in other words? And those are very much open questions. This is one other point that I want to, that I want to make. Even if it's established that, say, for example, the corpus callosum in women connecting the two hemispheres of the brain is uh, more densely connected, so that there's more, uh, there's a stronger connection between the two hemispheres of the brain, that's been posited by various studies. Let's suppose that it's that it's true. It may well be. I think it's it's a little bit controversial at this stage, but let's suppose that it's a real finding. Even if that holds, there is there is no simple mapping between brain structures and behavioral or cognitive function. In other words, just because there is a uh, there's a greater connection between the hemispheres in women. That, that it doesn't it doesn't follow simply from that that women are therefore better at multitasking or better at synthesizing things or anything like that. This is a just a, a really lazy and sloppy inference. You can't draw simple simple analogies or simple inferences about brain structure and behavior or cognitive function in that way. We don't understand nearly enough about how brain structure, particularly the gross level, uh, you know, fiber tracts and, and uh, functional regions and so on, uh, at that uh, how brain structure at that level really results in particular behaviors or cognitions in order to make any claims like that. I think this is more so the product of uh, sloppy scientific reporting than the scientific literature itself, although sometimes, of course, researchers do uh, tend to oversell their, their research. But um, I'm emphasizing this because I think it's a particularly a particularly big problem because these sorts of studies tend to get a lot of media coverage because it's something that well, makes good headlines. But uh, I just hope to paint a more nuanced and accurate picture about what these studies actually tell us. They don't necessarily tell us anything we didn't already know, and... 
furthermore, they don't tell us about they don't tell us what the actual behavioral or, or cognitive implications of, of these structural differences are. You can't make a simple mapping. There's no real evidence for that. And there are good reasons to suppose that such a simple uh, mapping you know, between more connected brain, therefore uh, more connected thoughts or something like that, it just, there's good reason to suppose that that's not the case at all. So, moving on from those biological differences, I now want to talk about occupational segregation, which is something that uh, I'm sure everyone has encountered in, in various ways. Women tend to go into some sorts of occupations disproportionately, and men tend to go into other sorts of occupations disproportionately. Now, part of this difference undoubtedly reflects uh, discrimination and bias of the type we talked about in Part 1. But there is, I think, certainly a lot more to it than that, because there are d massive differences in the rate at which men versus women express interest and apply for and uh, begin training for various different occupations. And so people have uh, studied this, and in particular, there's an interesting approach which uh, I, I came across, uh, w which involves categorizing different interests and occupations and other such things on various axes. And in particular, one one metric which was used was the extent to which the occupation or interest was related to things versus people. So this was referred to as the people versus things dimension. So things relates to you know working with gadgets or with with cars or you know uh, particularly engineering very much things oriented science in general or at least parts of science, whereas people involves working in what well, working with helping people uh, particularly medicine would uh, would be consistent with that uh, social activities that sort of thing. This is the idea of the thing versus people, and they interviewed a large number of people and got them to rank their interests in various different types of activities and potential career choices and so on, and their results showed that there was a very substantial difference between men and women in terms of their expressed difference, uh, in terms of basically how they scored on the people versus things uh, dimension. Uh, the, the overall effect size was, uh, there were very, there's a way of measuring the effect size. Uh, I won't give the number because it won't mean very much to, to most people, it doesn't mean that much to me, but it basically it's considered to be a large effect size as opposed to, for example, many of the biological differences that we spoke of before that I just uh, discussed about the differences in brain structure and function, most of those are quite small effect sizes. There are average differences but substantial overlap between the, the distributions of each of each gender. Whereas these effects here about the interest in people versus things and also some of the other uh, axes as well uh, showed generally quite large effect sizes, which is quite interesting. Also, men tended to show much stronger interest in uh, what was called the realistic a dimension which again involves with working with things or working outdoors, science and uh, maths and that sort of thing. And women tended to score much higher on the social uh, metric which involved helping people and working with people and things like that. So th these, these results are consistent with the stereotypes about women being more empathetic and interested in uh, social in interaction and men being, uh, men being more uh, investigative and agentic and interested in, in things. And to further examine whether this is the result of uh, socialization or biological differences, we we bring in our old friends, well, in a sense, we bring in our old friends, uh, girls with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, remember them? And uh, as expected, it turns out that females with congenital adrenal hyperplasia have a score along the people versus things, people versus things dimension uh, much more like males than they do like females. So this provides support for the notion that there are indeed hormonal effects on career choice and or at least interests that then uh, go on to affect career choice and that this can account for at least some of the occupational segregation between men and women. There's also been some interesting work done regarding, in particular, the differential effects of various agents of socialization on particularly adolescents' uh, career aspirations. And uh, so one study looked at the effect of the parental socioeconomic situation and 
compared that to uh, other other factors. So in particular, the, this study identified three channels by which parents affect the career aspirations of their children. One, as I said, was the uh, socioeconomic situation, and so that's uh, a fairly obvious point. You know, the the access to education and uh, just literacy generally and uh, social capital, other things like that, will have an effect on the types of careers that children will will uh, aspire to. So, so that socioeconomic position is one manner, manner by which parents affect the career aspirations of children. But also, there was a certain degree to which children directly imitated uh, parental occupations, and again, that's not terribly surprising. We all know about the phenomenon of uh, parents desiring their children to uh, follow in their footsteps in a given occupation. And and the third method uh, by which socialization affected career aspirations was by children's learning of sex-type roles uh, via their observation of parental behavior and also uh, uh, through, through other agents of socialization, media and so on. So there's no single one simple causal mechanism by which uh, parents and, and indeed society in general uh, socialize children to uh, leading to occupational segregation, there's a variety of methods. As we've said, there's socioeconomic pressures, there's direct imitation, and there's uh, learning of sex-type roles, thereby uh, predisposing uh, children to interest in different occupations according to their to their sex. It's reasonable to suppose that these effects are diminishing in recent decades as the as the proportion of women in uh, many traditionally male occupations increases, but uh, no, no doubt these effects still persist. Okay, so... Moving on from talking about occupation in general, we'll have a look at one particular application of occupational segregation which is particularly relevant and gets uh, brought up fairly frequently, and this is the uh, presence or relative absence of women in STEM fields. Uh, Previously I referred to it as math and STEM fields, but, uh, but that's rather redundant since STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, so you don't really need math and STEM, but anyway. So, uh, the basic observation is that in most STEM fields, some more than others, there's a dramatic underrepresentation in women, and this has this underrepresentation has perpetuated uh, in spite of the dramatic rise in the number of women, say, in fields like law or, or business. Just to illustrate the uh, the extent of the disparity in all fields in 2009, these figures are from the United States from 2009. There were slightly more doctorates awarded to males than females. 53% of doctorates were awarded to males, about 47% to females. So that's reasonably close to parity. However, the proportions differ greatly depending on the field in question. So, for example, in psychology, about 70% of the doctorates were awarded to females, only 30% to males. In the social sciences, it was basically 50-50. And in the biological sciences, it was pretty close to 50-50 as well, slightly more females there. But in mathematics, 70%, roughly, of doctors were awarded to males and only 30% to females. And it's a similar story in the physical sciences, so physics and chemistry, about 70% male, 30% female. In engineering and computer sciences, it was even more skewed. About 80% of the doctors were awarded to males and only about 20% to females. So there is a very significant disparity in some fields and a much smaller one in others. And indeed, there's a, a uh, disparity in the opposite direction in, in some fields, like psychology and uh, and fields in biology. Now, I gave the figures for doctorates because this is where the disparity is among the uh, is the most extreme, uh, at least in the maths and statistics field. So as we saw that uh, that uh, only about 30% of mathematics doctorates were awarded to, to females, but the percentage of bachelor degrees awarded in mathematics and statistics to, to females is uh, in that same year, not 2009 in the US, was about 43%, so only slightly skewed towards the males. If we look at some of the other figures for bachelor's degrees, now again, not doctorates, well, well, first of all, it's important to understand that in all fields, uh, there were more bachelor's degrees awarded to females. 57% of all bachelor's degrees in the US were awarded to females in 2009. In science and engineering fields, it was exactly 50-50, pretty much right on. 
So, so in science and engineering as a whole, at least at the bachelor level, women are not underrepresented. At the doctoral, at the doctoral level, as we've seen, they are slightly underrepresented. Again, this is in science and engineering. If we look at the different subfields of sciences, though, in the biological sciences, again, this is bachelor's degrees, women are awarded about 60% of biological science degrees, so that's an overrepresentation. 77% of psychology degrees, bachelor's degrees awarded to women. But if we look at fields like the physical sciences, about only about 40% of degrees, and if we look at computer science and engineering, less than 20% of degree, uh, the degrees, about 18% in both cases. So, so basically, we can set up a hierarchy which apply, is constant more or less across bachelor's degrees and doctorates, although generally for doctorates, uh, you can sort of scale down in, in pretty much all fields the percentage of, of females. Uh, in, even in psychology, the percentage of females uh, at the doctoral level is a bit less than the percentage at the, the bachelor level. Uh, but, but anyway, we can sort of rank field psychology as the by far the, the most women, a uh, substantial majority of women, uh, in, uh, 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 people in, in psychology are women. Then down from that we have biological sciences, then mathematics and statistics with a slight majority of males, and then the physical sciences, physics and chemistry, and then the lowest proportion of all are in uh, engineering and the computer sciences. So what are we to make of this fact that there is a substantial overrepresentation of women in some fields and a substantial underrepresentation in others? And this pattern is uh, broadly similar over the bachelor's and, and doctor's uh, doctoral degrees. I think it's broadly similar across other countries as well. I've been given fig uh, been giving figures for the U.S. There are differences across countries, but uh, it would take too long to go over all of those. But the, the broad pattern is is largely similar, although you do see some differences. For example, in some Middle Eastern countries, I think that there's a very high proportion of women in, in certain science and technology fields. But uh, certainly Western countries tend to show a similar pattern to the U.S. So I think there's a few interesting things to say here. First of all, and there's a couple of effects that we want to separate out. First of all, there's the effect of women going into science uh, just by itself. Then there's the issue of mathematics, and there's uh, been a long-standing question in science and sort of in the popular culture generally about whether women are worse at mathematics uh, than men are, or whether there's a difference there. And then there's the issue in particular about the, the uh, as we mentioned before, the things versus people dimension of interests. I think that uh, the, the fact that women tend to be much more interested in the, the people dimension of things rather than the things dimension is consistent with the fact that very few women go into, in particular, engineering and computer science, which are very much, if, if any disciplines were focused on things, it would be engineering in particular, but, but also computer science, arguably. And the very large majority of women in psychology, and to, to a somewhat lesser extent, biology, is also consistent with the uh, the tendency for women to be more interested in, in people dimension than the things dimension. So I think we can explain at least part of this effect purely on the, the things versus people interest dimension. But mathematics, I don't think we can explain in those ways. That's why I separated that out as a separate issue. So there's the things versus people uh, distinction, which can explain, I think, engineering and psychology. But maths is different because maths isn't really about things or people. It's very abstract. And so I think there's something different going on here. And we need to look below the surface and, and have a look at some of the research about women in mathematics. So first of all is the question of, are men better at math than women, or is there a, a different average or something like that? There's been an immense amount of study on this, and it's really... <laughs> so we won't go into the details of all of these studies because it's just uh, overwhelming. Basically, if there is a difference, it's small and context-dependent. So it's important to understand that one can't just talk in a generic sense about men or women being better at one thing or another thing, because obviously there's an enormous variation within men and within women about maths ability. So what we're looking at are two overlapping distributions, a distribution of mathematics ability in men and that in women. And if you were to plot these distributions and superimpose them, you would see that they overlap almost completely. 
So the, the question is not whether men or women are better at maths. Uh, the, the question is, do the distributions overlap completely uh, such that there, there is no discernible difference at all between men and women? Or is there a slight difference in the distribution such that uh, men are on average uh, slightly more likely to be slightly better at maths than women or, or something like that? Another hypothesis which is related to, uh, to, to that is that there may be more variation in the mathematics performance of men such that there are more men who are really bad at maths but also more men who are really good at maths than women. From my research, there does seem to be some support for this uh, greater diversity, uh, greater male diversity, it's called, I at least in the US, but it doesn't seem to hold in all countries um, and in all across all racial groups either. So there's sort of limited support for that. It may be true, it may not be true. Also, even if it is true, it's then there's the question of whether this is a, a sort of a social, cultural thing or whether it's a biological thing, and I don't think we really have enough information to determine that. There does seem to be some evidence that certain types of, of visuospatial tasks men tend to um, perform uh, better than women, but again, there's a substantial overlap in the distributions, and anyway, that's that by no means... Uh, it, from that, it by no means follows that men are better at maths than women because you know, a visuospatial task is only, at best, somewhat related to a small component of, of what maths is. So... The, the overall evidence for men better being better at mathematics than women is uh, scant at best and uh, yeah, highly mixed. If we just look at math scores in terms of you know high school test scores, there isn't any difference anymore between the, the performance of men and women. It's true that there used to be. Largely, that's thought to have been the result of, essentially, uh, women taking fewer math courses, particularly at the high school level, and, and fewer advanced math courses than men did. But that is no longer the case. Women uh, in the US, and I think in most Western countries now, take just as many math, uh, advanced math courses as men do, and score just as well at them, again, on average. That's not quite the same question as whether men and women are as good at maths again. So th there's the studies that look at test results, and then there's different studies which will look at more basic psychological uh, experiments, which can which can try and sort of measure more more basic abilities. And as I've said, in those there is very mixed evidence, and maybe there's some advantage in certain visuospatial tasks to males, but the distributions overlap a very large amount, and it's uh, by no means clear that there's a particular uh, that there's much of a difference at all. But it is the case that there is a uh, fairly substantial difference in particularly in, in, the, in the number of doctorates awarded to, to males versus females in mathematics. So how can we explain this? Uh, what factors may be contributing to the relatively uh, the relative underrepresentation of women in maths and, and some of the other sciences as well? There is some very interesting research about how children are socialized both by parents and by teachers in different ways when it comes to science and maths education. And I think that this uh, that it's these socialization, or differential socialization between men and women, or boys and girls, which can uh, largely explain the, the difference in enrollment in, and interest in maths and some sciences between men and women. It's also important to point out that the difference has been shrinking. So in the 1950s, only 5% of maths PhDs went to women, whereas now it's uh, closer to 30%. So uh, the trends have been uh, moving in the direction of greater equality, but, but we still have a significant inequality. And as I pointed out, mathematics and other physical sciences have trailed, say, biology and psychology and social sciences in the number of women uh, who have been entering these fields. So there seem to be certain effects here that, are, that are distinctive to these fields. And uh, as I'm about to argue, that I think that these can be traced to differential socialization when it comes in particular to maths and science, which does not exist so much when it comes to, say, social science or psychology or other things. So let, let's take a look at some of this evidence. Well, first of all, there's a lot of interesting evidence about the ways that parents perceive the maths abilities and talents of their children. Again, it's important that one examines this carefully because if you just ask parents about, you know, are boys better at maths than girls? Well, actually, parents uh, may, some parents may say different things. There does seem there, there is still a stereotype there, but 
So although some stereotypes do still exist, when you directly ask parents about whether they you know, treat their child differently or whether they consider their child to be uh, more or less skilled at, at math, depending on whether they're a male or female, they are less likely to exhibit a, a prejudice or a bias there than if you actually test them in a more naturalistic setting or something like that. So it does turn out that parents tend to have a higher expectations and high, a greater confidence in the, mathematics, in the mathematics abilities of their male children than their female children. And there is evidence that parental expectations of this sort do have an effect on the performance of, of children. So in other words, it, it, there is there does seem to be some evidence that if parents expect uh, girls to perform worse at mathematics, then that expectation in some subtle way then does go on to affect actual performance and lead to poorer performance overall. But more interestingly than that, because those effects aren't especially large, because remember, overall boys and girls perform relatively uh, equally in terms of mass tests. But uh, one one study found that parents of boys tended to rate natural talent as much more, as a much more important reason for their child's math successes than did parents of girls. So uh, in turn, parents of girls tended to rate effort as a much more important for their for their mathematical successes. So even if parents don't necessarily consider there to be a difference in the math performance of, of boys and girls, they will tend to say that if a boy is good at math, that's because they have a natural talent, whereas if a girl's good at math, it's because they uh, must have tried very hard or put a lot of effort in. There are other differences in the way that parents treat their boys and girls as well. Compared to parents of boys, parents of girls are less likely to, be, to buy mathematics-related toys and games, and they are more likely to report that mathematics is less important than other subjects, uh, again, for their girls compared to their boys. Furthermore, there have been some interesting studies where researchers looked at how parents uh, gave assistance to their children while doing maths homework in a naturalistic setting. And uh, one of these experiments found that instances of uninvited help and uh, interference, which were referred to as intrusive support, you know, so this is where a parent like, jumps in and um, provides the answer or, or gives a hint when they're not explicitly asked for assistance by the child. They found that these instances of intrusive support were more common when girls were doing maths homework compared to when boys were doing maths homework. And that furthermore, that girls who received more such intrusive support had lower perceptions of their own math ability than, boys who received, uh, th than the boys who received less of that sort of intrusive support. So, so this confluence of factors about uh, parents' attitudes, about their behaviours while supporting uh, children doing maths homework, and about purchasing of, of games and toys, all, all seem to contribute to uh, girls having uh, a lower concept of their own maths ability and considering maths to be less important and, and, and less of a thing that girls uh, should, should be interested in or, or should be concerned about. And this effect is not just found from, uh, is not present only in parents as well. There's many interesting studies about how teachers treat uh, girls and boys differently. Uh, particularly in regard to maths and science. So first of all, similar to parents, teachers show gender stereotyped beliefs about students' math abilities. So for example, in one study, first grade teachers in the US uh, rated that their best male students as being more logical and more competitive and more independent and capable in math, and also in liking math, more than their best female students. Other studies have examined the way in which teachers react, uh, interact with their students and how they rate their, their students' work. And... Uh, this research has tended to show that teachers will give the same overall amounts of positive and negative feedback uh, to, to male and female students. However, the nature of the feedback is different. So, repeatedly, studies clearly show that girls are much more likely to have their the neatness of their work praised, as opposed to the actual content of the work praised, whereas boys uh, would tend to be criticised on their, the messiness or organisation of their work or other aspects of their behaviour. But the, their work tends to be rated higher based on the, the, the quality of the information or of the mathematical correctness and things like that. 
So in other words, uh, boys tend to be praised for the intellectual content of their work, whereas girls tend to be praised for non-intellectual aspects of their work. And in a fascinating follow-up study to these results, the, the, these patterns of positive and negative feedback were randomly assigned to, to boys and girls. That is, boys, uh, groups of boys and girls were randomly assigned the boys' pattern of feedback, and a, another group was randomly assigned to the girls' pattern of feedback. And it was found that the boys' pattern of feedback, remember, which is uh, relatively more positive uh, feedback about the, the contents of the work as opposed to neatness and other things, uh, tends to uh, tended to lead to the children to attribute their academic failures to lack of effort, whereas the girls' pattern of feedback uh, tended to lead to uh, those who received that type of feedback to attribute their academic failures to lack of ability. And uh, various other studies have demonstrated that it's much more beneficial for for learning and for conscientious effort and things like that if children attribute that their uh, success or failure to effort rather than ability, I think for fairly obvious reasons. So it's very interesting. It seems to be that the actual ways in which the, the types of feedback and ways that the teachers interact with with students actually differentially predisposes them to be have a relatively greater or less interest in and confidence in their mathematics uh, ability. Uh, other studies have also found that girls tend to receive less attention uh, from teachers than boys, regardless of the subject or age of the students. Uh, there's some argument that it may be uh, a greater uh, there may be a greater disparity in science and math classes than in other classes. Boys tend to ask more follow-up questions and comments on ideas related to the work, whereas girls tend to be more complimented for their looks or the neatness of their work. So, again, uh, very distinct differences in the way that teachers interact with their students. And, and again, this applies to female and male teachers, uh, not, not exclusively to, to one or the other. Other studies have looked at the children's attitudes to, to see how they feel about their uh, ability and interest in science and mathematics. Uh, one interesting study found that boys do have more positive attitude towards science than girls, although the effect was quite small, so small but significant. It was particularly small in biology and larger in uh, the physical sciences, which is consistent with the relative uh, proportions of men and women in these fields. Interestingly, in these type of studies where they asked uh, girls to talk about what they thought about science, uh, a number of girls made a, a somewhat interesting distinction between a scientist, someone who studies biology or zoology or something like that, and a scientist scientist who uses chemicals or works with rockets. And so th this seems to be consistent with the distinction between the, again, rem again remember the people versus things dimension that we talked about earlier. And uh, again, a common reason that many of the girls gave for their interest in life science as opposed to physical sciences was their desire to care for people and or animals. But it seems that we can't simply attribute the differential enrollments and, uh, and awardings of degrees in maths and science and engineering to differences in interest, although that seems to be part of the reason. But it's also the case that even when men and women are equally well prepared for a scientific or other technical majors in terms of the courses that they've done and the grades that they've received and so on, uh, women still tend to drop out of these programs at considerably greater rates than males. And it's not exactly clear why this is the case. Issues relating to desires to raise family and have children may be part of it, but uh, probably that's not the whole story. So it's uh, it's not exactly known why there's this higher dropout rate, but Certainly, it seems that even for women who are interested in pursuing careers in science and engineering and such, that there are various factors that operate to, uh, to mitigate against success in, in those endeavours. And uh, one factor that people are pointing to is the sort of uh, just heavy male domination and uh, potentially sort of misogynistic attitudes that, that still uh, persist in, in these sorts of disciplines that are heavily dominated by males and the sort of subtle ways in which, uh, sometimes not so subtle ways in which uh, women are marginalised or are treated poorly and discriminated against in various ways. You know, for example, uh, the ways that teachers tend to 
rate males work more highly or take questions from males more than females, these, these sorts of effects that we've discussed before. So it, it's probable that those are contributing to the effect, but uh, there, there may also be other uh, factors as well. So it seems that overall the reasons for the gender differences in STEM fields are complicated and multifaceted, as indeed are all of the uh, contributing factors to all sex differences. Now let's move on to talk a bit about emotions and differences in emotions, uh, and particularly emotional display, between uh, men and women. So first of all, it's important to understand the concept of emotional display rules, uh, and these are defined as being culturally and socially transmitted uh, rules and habits about what emotions are appropriate and in what ways they can be appropriately displayed uh, by men and women. So a uh, famous example, males should not cry, and females uh, should generally not show anger. These are emotional display rules. They are very strongly, uh, as I said, overlearned, so very strongly transmitted and in enforced. So if men or women contravene these actions then uh, and, and engage in emotional displays which are considered to be inappropriate for their gender, then uh, there tend to be fairly strong negative reactions from uh, social receivers. So the, the one of men crying is uh, arguably somewhat less strongly enforced now than it used to be, but women showing anger does seem to be fairly strongly enforced uh, even today, and we, we see this indeed in the uh, in the business context, as we discussed earlier, about uh, women who display uh, excess, uh, display anger or, or ambition, and, and these sorts of things are perceived as being aggressive and angry and uh, disagreeable people. So that's an example of the negative reactions from social perceivers that, that we see in response to a transgression of gender display rules. And uh, how are these gender display rules uh, transmitted? How does the socialization process occur? Well, it, there's, there's a fair bit of evidence that uh, a large portion of this is the product of the parents' behavior. Parents seem to be more responsive to boys' disharmonious emotions and to girls' dismissive emotions. So in other words, they reinforce gender-appropriate emotional displays by uh, giving them more attention. Parents use more anger-related words with boys than girls, and they tend to use more sadness and happiness-related words with girls. There is also likely to be, as we've discussed earlier, an effect of direct emulation of parents' behavior. So uh, if fathers and mothers behave in different ways, as, as they do tend to in uh, consistent with gender roles, then children will tend to emulate that uh, to an extent. So there, there seems to be there seems to be an element of emulation of parent behavior and also of uh, reinforcement of uh, gender appropriate behavior by parents uh, in the form of greater attention to, uh, to to behavior that's considered to be consistent with gender emotion display rules. So now let's turn to look at some particular emotions uh, and have a, and examine the gender differences there. Empathy, basically, as one would expect. Studies indicate fairly conclusively that women score much more highly in empathy than uh, men do. In particular, if you look at the very top and very bottom of, of the spectrum of, of empathy scores, empathy quotients it's called, about three times as many men sit at the very bottom, uh, in the very lowest range of uh, empathy, and about three times as many women as men sit at the very top super empathetic range. Now, whether this reports women's greater willingness to report empathetic behavior or their actual high levels of underlying empathy cannot really be determined. Aggression. Now, this one has received, I think, quite a lot of research. First of all, it's very clear that men are dramatically overrepresented in almost all socially problematic behaviours involving aggression and criminal behaviour, uh, particularly those that are linked to impulsivity. So, uh, taking some figures from the US, for example, 97% of dangerous driving offences are committed by men. Men have significantly higher rates of death from falls, drowning, choking, execution, firearm accidents, and fires. Men are physically and verbally aggressive much more than women across uh, different data sources, and this applies across countries. This isn't just from the US. There's no question that men are far more physically and verbally aggressive than women. Men constitute 76% of all criminal arrests in the United States. They commit 89% of homicides and 82% of all violent crime, which actually surprised me a bit, uh, meaning that 
18% of all violent crime is committed by women. I would have thought it would be a, high, a much lower percentage than that, but nonetheless still dramatically overrepresented uh, by men there. Worldwide, men use drugs uh, much more than women. They're more likely to participate in extreme sports like skydiving and mountain climbing. Uh, men are all also more likely to exhibit various uh, psychopathologies involving externalizing and impulsive behaviors such as antisocial personality disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and intermittent explosive uh, disorder. So, so there's no question that uh, in terms of impulsivity, recklessness, and, and violence and aggression, men are dramatically overrepresented. However, whether this represents a true difference in underlying levels of anger or aggression, or merely a difference in behavior, is a different question. And a couple of interesting studies that I found seem to indicate that it might be uh, more of a, an instance of uh, social display rules and the way that boys versus girls are socialized uh, to, to react to their feelings of anger or, or frustration and the way that they're socialized to, uh, to deal with impulsivity as well. So, for example, when studies try to differentiate between what's called direct and indirect aggression, uh, they tend to find quite substantial differences. So direct aggression is uh, includes things like physical aggression and direct verbal attacks on people. And there, overwhelmingly, boys and men um, exhibit much higher rates of direct aggression than females. However, when you look at indirect aggression, the levels uh, between males and females are essentially the same. Indirect aggression uh, includes things like uh, gossiping, denying of social status, exclusion, and things like that. So, so more subtle methods of um, expressing uh, a dislike or aggression towards another person. And as, set, as I said, these levels of uh, the rates of these aggression uh, tend to be roughly the same between males and females. So, so this points to the fact that it may not be necessarily the case that men are angrier than women. They may respond to their anger in different ways and be less able to control uh, their impulsive urges. Whether this is a social or a biological question is, again, another matter. I suspect that it's probably related to both uh, socialization and probably hormonal differences. There is a correlation between levels of testosterone and aggression. Of course, whether that's causal is a different matter, but it, it does seem to be the case that hormones have a role in uh, differential rates of aggression between the males and females, but I think also uh, differential socialization and social expectations play an important component as well. And uh, one further piece of evidence regarding the importance of social uh, reinforcement is uh, some interesting studies regarding how men who express anger versus sadness are, are treated, particularly in a professional context. Uh, th these studies found that men who expressed anger in a professional context, so in a business or something like that, were conferred a higher status than men who expressed sadness. However, both male and female evaluators conferred lower status on angry female professionals as compared to angry male professionals. As we discussed before, it seems to be that women's emotional reactions were attributed to internal characteristics, you know, she's an angry person, whereas men's emotional reactions were attributed to external characteristics. So again, this is consistent with what we discussed before about occupational segregation and internal versus external emotional attributions, which are made differentially depending on the uh, gender of the, the person in question. Now we'll move on to talk a bit about, a bit about fear. As with the other emotions we've discussed, there are gender differences in self-reports of fear. In particular, uh, women, compared to men, report greater fear of animals like snakes and dogs. In contrast, however, there are a few gender differences for uh, social fears, like, for example, public speaking, and also for other uh, fears of bodily in injury, uh, such as car accidents or something like that, or, or classic phobias like confined spaces. So only certain things seem to have differential, seem to exhibit gender differentials in, in degrees of fear, so uh, particularly repulsive or harmless animals. Women do seem to be, well are, I should say, at greater risk of anxiety disorders, uh, depression and other mood disorders, compared to men. There's a much higher rate there. It's not precisely known why that's the case. There have been some interesting studies comparing levels of negative affect, which is negative emotion like sadness and things like that, uh, of boys and girls as they age and, and develop. 
during the first few months of life, boys actually show greater levels of negative affect uh, as compared to girls, but uh, as they age, that uh, ratio reverses, and girls begin to show greater and greater propensities towards negative affect uh, as they age. So, if anything, it seems that there may be a biological effect operating to increase the rate of negative affect of males, but that this is uh, that this is increasingly attenuated relative to the inf uh, the effect of environmental experience, which tends to pre uh, which tends to predispose uh, girls and women towards greater negative affects than males. Compared to men, women are more likely to overestimate the probability of danger in a, an ambiguous situation and to expect more uh, at greater degrees of harm and to anticipate poorer coping abilities than men. In terms of, so, so these results so far have been mostly related to self-reports. What about actual physiological differences? There are differences in, say, the levels of skin conductivity and blood pressure and other such uh, physiological measures between men and women when placed in stressful or difficult situations. However, it's very hard to infer from this whether there, that means that there is an actual sort of experiential difference. In other words, it really depends on how you measure it. There are some physiological factors that differ, some that do not, and it, it's harder to know. It's hard to know which of these are important and which aren't. Overall, I'd say that the the physiological evidence is ambiguous as to whether there is a significant difference in in fear response or anything like that between males and females. I think that it's it, it's it's difficult to say with any a degree of confidence there. Overall, though, there, there is no question that at least in terms of of self reports and expression of emotions, there are significant differences between men and women. Whether this is a result of biological differences or socialization is uh, not easy to say. I think there's definitely evidence that it's at least partly the result of socialization. There's not very good evidence of any particular biological effects other than that of uh, hormones and particularly aggressive behaviors. So, moving on to our very last topic, that of conversational differences. Now, this might seem like a bit of an odd inclusion. It's not perhaps one of the more traditional areas where one thinks of gender differences like the occupational segregation and emotions and mathematics, as we've discussed before. But this was a one uh, small body of literature which uh, I came across and that caught my attention was that of uh, differences in conversational behaviours between men and women. So there's sort of two aspects to this. One is uh, that of interruption and the other is that of conversational topics. So I'll talk about interruptions first, uh, just very briefly. So there have been a number of studies which have attempted to determine whether males are more likely to interrupt in a conversation as opposed to females, and whether this effect is uh, variable depending upon the gender of the uh, conversational partner. Now, the results in this field have been somewhat mixed. It seems that overall, according to a meta-analysis that I read, men are slightly more likely, but only uh, the effect size only being small, slightly more likely to, in to initiate an interruption in a conversation than women are. However, when you actually look at the type of interruption and the nature of the, of the situation, uh, the differences become a bit more pronounced. So if you restrict your attention to uh, what the what the authors described as intrusive interruptions, which are uh, attempts to usurp the speaker's turn and exhibit sort of a, a demonstration of dominance in the conversation, rather than the, the type of interruptions where you're affirming what the, the, the current speaker is saying or extending on a thought. Uh, intrusive interruptions is more like uh, generally expressing disagreement or at least uh, trying to take the, turn, the conversational turn away from the current speaker towards yourself. Those type of interruptions were significantly more common among, uh, to, uh, significantly more likely to be initiated by males than females. There's also an interesting gender effect in that females are just as likely to interrupt males and females, so, so females don't, tend, don't seem to discriminate based on who they interrupt. But males do. Males are much more likely to interrupt females than they are to interrupt other males. And as I said, their uh, interruptions are much more likely to be of a, uh, of a negative variety or of a, an intrusive variety, whether they're expressing disagreement or attempting to, attempting to take over the active turn in, in the conversation. Another related finding is the way that boys and girls and men and women tend to socialize is a bit different. There seems to be a preference for uh, girls to socialize in smaller groups, whereas men tend to socialize in larger groups. 
and it may be the case that larger group size contributes to these sorts of behaviours in men, so more likely to uh, interrupt, and there the, indeed may be other interesting and subtle effects of how the, the group size and dynamics of male socialisation differs from that of, of females, but I didn't read specifically too much about that. Another interesting finding of this uh, literature was that males are more likely to initiate negative and intrusive interruptions, as we established before, but also the odds of a man yielding the floor to a negative interruption uh, from a female are much, much lower than uh, about, about one-third as likely, in other words, as females are to yield up the floor to a male. So in other words, if a female interrupts a male with a negative intrusive interruption, the male is quite unlikely to yield up the floor and allow the woman to speak. Whereas if a male does the reverse and interrupts a woman, much more likely that he is going to be successful in usurping her turn in the conversation. So it's interesting how these sort of subtle conversational effects and uh, can exhibit the social disparities in terms of power relationships uh, that, that are present in the wider society. One final little uh, study that I found concerns topics of conversation among groups of males and females. So these were not conducted in laboratories. These were uh, real-world observational experiments, uh, a number of them conducted at various times and places. I think many of them were uh, from, uh, conducted at universities, but not all of them. Some of them were uh, members of the general public. It was found that, oh, and the purpose of the studies was just to ascertain what the topic of conversation was and to see whether there was any difference in conversation topics between male groups and female groups. In all of the studies, women held the majority of conversations about people and relationships. So 70% of all conversations about people and relationships were in groups of women, obviously compared to 50% if it was purely even. While men held most of the conversations about work and money, about 70%. So there's a clear difference there between women and men in terms of what they tend to talk about. Leisure activity was also a more popular topic among men, although it seems to be that mostly this was a result of men talking a lot more about sport, because obviously that was incorporated under leisure activities. A large majority of conversations about appearances, about 80% across all the different studies, were held among women. Also, there was a, a slightly smaller tendency for men to be more likely to talk about social and political issues. So, uh, perhaps somewhat unsurprising, women tend to talk more about people, relationships and appearances. Men t tend to talk more about work, money and sports, as well as politics. It should be noted that these studies are hardly completely representative of all cultures, well, they're not representative of all cultures or of all aspects of society. As I said, mostly, I think they were done among college students, but not exclusively. And there is evidence that the discrepancy has been decreasing. So the first of these studies, I think, was done in the 1920s or 30s, and the differences there were quite substantially larger than the, the differences in more recent studies. So there has been some convergence, it seems. But it's unsurprising, given the evidence that we... Uh, that we examined earlier about the difference in, differences in interests and, you know, the, the people versus things dimension uh, between the genders, that, that there should also be a difference in conversational topics. Remember also that there tends to be a difference in group sizes between male and female uh, social groupings, and that also perhaps may uh, make a difference in terms of the uh, topic of conversation. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, double-part episode. I hope you learned a few things. I know it was a little bit, uh, perhaps disorganized in terms of just lots of material sort of all over the place, but this literature is rather disorganized. There are so many different topics. There are many things we didn't cover that we could have. I chose a selection of topics that I thought were of most interest, but if you have any uh, feedback or criticisms, questions, or anything, send me an email. My address is fods12 at gmail.com, F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. Also, uh, jump on the Facebook page. Just type in Science of Everything Podcast into Facebook, and you can give us a like and help to spread the word about the podcast. Favorable reviews left on iTunes on the podcast page are also greatly appreciated. Help uh, increase the visibility of the, of the podcast. So, thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.